The Idaho police snap back at the victim's father. Things are getting good in the Alec Murdoch case. The ex-lawyer even lawyers hate. He learns his fate. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day and welcome to Crime Talk. My name is Scott Reich, and you're at the channel where people come for facts and analysis by a real practicing criminal defense attorney. Now, remember, tonight is Tuesday, so please join us this evening, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, for our Tuesday night live show. We'll discuss the cases you want to talk about and take your questions. Immediately following our Patreon show, well, the conversation continues, and, well, we'll give you the secret Crime Talk phone number to call into and we'll talk about the cases that you want to talk about. And remember, you know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, hit that little bell so you receive notifications, leave me a comment, and remember you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. Just simply search Crime Talk. All right, let's go ahead and also support the people that support Crime Talk. Go to crimetalksearch.com. Get that background subscription service. You'll be happy you did. You can do an unlimited number of background searches while you have that subscription, and you can also cancel at any time. But that report is literally generated while you wait, and you're going to get information about property records. You're going to get information about whether somebody has judgments against them. Do they have a criminal history? Mm, do they have to put themselves on one of those public registries? Mm, you know what I mean? Exactly. Things you're going to find out. It is dating malpractice not to do a background search. Go to crimetalksearch.com. Search anyone that is entering into your life that maybe you're just not sure about or you want to be certain about it. Go ahead and check them out, crimetalksearch.com. Let's go ahead and open the docket for Tuesday, December 6, 2022. All right, the police in Idaho snapping back a little bit. And well, and then they also say, well, we still need your help. So the police in Idaho say they are now seeking more information on the earlier movements of the two college students killed in the quadruple homicide last month. And they are denying telling the family of victim Kaylee Gunn. Savez, that's right, soft C apparently, almost sounds like an S, that her injuries were more brutal than those of other victims. Now, in the latest statement on November 13th, the Moscow, the Moscow, not the Moscow Police Department, as people have been trying to tell me. So apparently it's Moscow, not Moscow. We pronounce it like we see it. There you go. Anyway, the Moscow Police Department said on Monday that it's now looking for information regarding the movements of Ethan Chapin and Zena Kernodal, who visited Ethan's fraternity house hours before the murders. Police believe Ethan and uh, Zena visited the Sigma Chi house on the University of Idaho campus from about 9 p.m. on November 12th until about 1.45 a.m. when they returned to Zena's off-campus home, obviously just a brief walk away. That actually seems to be one of the larger areas that we don't have a lot of information in or about, according to the Idaho State Police Communications Director, a guy by the name of Aaron Snell. Well, tensions are also growing between the investigators and the families, if not at least one family, of the victims who have spoken out about frustration about the failure to identify a suspect. Kaylee's father, stated that police had told him her injuries were worse than the other victims, but he wouldn't go into detail. And the Moscow Police Department contradicted that remark 
in a new statement, quote, with the active criminal investigation, law enforcement has not released additional facts to the family or the public. The statement added that there have been statements and speculation about this case, victim injuries, cause of death, evidence collection, and processing and investigative techniques. However, we firmly believe speculation and unvetted information is a disservice to the victims, their families, and our community. The statement continued. The Moscow Police Department is committed, they say, to providing information whenever possible, but not at the expense of compromising the investigation and the prosecution. Police also said that they looked into the theory that Kaylee had a stalker. Police made a statement in mid-October that two males appeared to follow Kaylee inside the local business and then followed her out to her car, but they never made any contact with her. Now, after speaking with the two males, police determined it to be an isolated incident and said that there was no evidence to suggest that they were involved in the murder in any way. Now, this update um, on Monday revealed that there were two males inside the unknown business before they parted ways with one male following Gonzalez into the business. He was then seen following her outside the business as she walked to her car. The male turned away from her and it did not appear he made any contact with her, according to the police. Police did not say which business this alleged incident occurred. The police have apparently contacted both males and learned that the two were attempting to meet women at the business, which was corroborated through additional investigation, which basically means I guess they were hanging out at the establishment, hitting on girls by creeping them out, I guess. Police also revealed that there was no evidence, physical evidence or something of evidentiary value on the Miss Gonzalez dog, Murphy, who was at the scene when the police arrived and has not yet been determined which room the dog was in when the murders took place. We'll keep you updated. Some people have a real problem with the police releasing anything. Why don't interfere? Well, in this particular case, the police are really telling us they've got nothing. And so when you have nothing, you have to go to the people. Well, and the people feel empowered, I think, to help and to provide information when they feel as though the police are being honest with them. If they said, hey, we don't have anything, um, we need your help, I think people would say, let's help. Let's see what we can do. Obviously, we don't want innocent people uh, maligned or arrested for a crime they didn't do. But someone somewhere knows something. And if you're the family of any of those four victims in this particular case, you want justice and you want it now. And the longer this case goes, the more likely it becomes a cold case. Sometimes the police just need to look at it and say, we need your help. And I don't know why, if it's just because they don't want to look like they cannot handle a uh, homicide that has attracted the attention uh, nationally. I, I just don't get it. Just ask for help. People do it all the time. Next, Alec Murdoch. Things are getting good. Now, there was a hearing uh, late last week, Friday to be exact, where Mr. Murdoch did not attend, but both of his attorneys were there along with the prosecutors. But there were a few points on the record that set kind of a stage for the evidentiary hearing coming up for this Friday. Now, 
The hearing comes as the pace of the pretrial motions seems to be picking up with less than two months before the planned start of the murder trial in which um, Mr. Murdoch is accused of killing his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. Now, the state and the defense um, apparently did agree. Uh, we were able to glean from the uh, brief motions hearing as it relates to the general jury questionnaire that would be presented to the potential jurors. The uh, court questionnaires are obviously used to determine whether prospective jurors are qualified to serve impartially on the jury. And the, both sides agreed that they plan to submit motions um, early this week with responses filed by tomorrow in advance of, well, Friday's hearing that could determine what evidence both sides are actually allowed to present at trial. The prosecution has indicated that it would likely not respond by uh, this week to the motions submitted by Murdoch attorneys attacking the DNA and the blood spatter evidence supposedly linking Mr. Murdoch to the shootings, according to the prosecution's theory of prosecution. They stated, the prosecution stated, we are in the process of assessing those motions. And uh, that's not necessarily what we'll hear next Friday, but we are working on that. And they'll file a response when they have their necessary information that they believe they need to respond. Now, those two motions that were filed by Mr. Murdoch's attorneys uh, kind of tore into law enforcement's analysis of a white cotton shirt that uh, Murdoch was allegedly wearing the night of the murders. The prosecution has alleged that an expert identified a fine mist of blood covering the shirt from being in the presence of someone who is shot. Now, the defense attorneys have argued that the outside expert originally determined that there was no so-called blood splatter on the shirt. The expert then changed his mind, according to the motion, that's what's alleged, that he changed his mind after he was visited by the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division investigators who persuaded him to make a new determination. Now, the t-shirt was uh, found to have been destroyed while being held in evidence, which is alleged. We'll have to wait and see what the prosecution's response to that is, because that's significant when evidence that's in the care and custody of the prosecution disappears. That's a problem, a big problem, ladies and gentlemen. Murdoch has also uh, filed a notice of alibi challenging the prosecution's timeline. And in that notice, um, it states that Mr. Murdoch states that while he was at the hunting lodge the night of the murders, Maggie and Paul were still alive around 9 p.m. when Mr. Murdoch left to go to visit his mother in nearby Varnville. Now, while on the drive to and from Varnville, Murdoch made multiple phone calls to friends and relatives, according to his testimony that he gave to police early on. And according to the court filings, he discovered Maggie's and Paul's body on his return to the house. His attorneys requested that future hearings uh, are going to be held in the Richland uh, County, which is where Mr. Murdoch is currently being held along on this case, along with the other 98 counts uh, that he uh, has uh, pending against him. Now, for those of you who um, are not familiar with the Murdoch case, it is alleged that after 8.44 p.m. on June 7th, 2021, the uh, prosecutors alleged that Mr. Murdoch uh, killed his wife, uh, Maggie, and uh, their son, who was 22 at the time, Paul Murdoch, near the dog kennels on the family's 1,700-acre hunting property known as Mosul. This is just 
one more case in the smattering of legal cases that uh, Mr. Murdoch has pending against him. Obviously, however, the most serious. And we're also learning a little bit more information about the injuries that people have sustained uh, in this particular case. Um, we know that Paul Murdoch was hit by a pair of shotgun blasts on the evening in which he was killed, one to the head, the other to the arm and chest. Maggie Murdoch was slain by multiple rounds from a rifle around the same time her son was killed. And at least two of Maggie Murdoch's gunshot wounds were inflicted, it's alleged, while she was lying on the ground, consistent with initial reports that it was some sort of execution-style slain. Now, Maggie Murdoch's body was found approximately 30 yards from the dog kennel where her son was murdered, also at the crime scene. Now, jurors in this case are going to get presented with a lot of graphic photos from the crime scene. And according to those who have actually viewed some of the crime scene photos, well, when they're saying they're referring to Mr. Paul Murdoch's wounds, people are saying that apparently you can see his face, but the rest apparently is gone. Totally empty. Anyway, we'll keep you posted. Ah, yes, the lawyer that makes every lawyer look bad and even lawyers hate him, Michael Avenatti. Now, one thing I thought when Michael Avenatti's star was rising was that any star that rises that fast usually comes down just as fast. And oh, did it indeed. So Michael Avenatti, who obviously rose to uh, some prominence representing Stormy Daniels in her lawsuit against former President Trump, was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison for dodging taxes and stealing millions of dollars from clients. So in a district court in Orange County on uh, Monday, Mr. Avenatti, who's 51, so that's a big number for him to serve, well, he was ordered to pay nearly $8 million in restitution after admittedly that he secretly took settlement money, paid it to his client, and spent some of it to buy a private jet. Now, Avenatti pled guilty to four additional counts of wire fraud and tax-related charges earlier this year without reaching a plea deal with the prosecutors. And he told the court during his guilty plea that he just wanted to be accountable and spare his family any further embarrassment. And he's currently serving his time in Southern California prison on two separate cases. Um, one case, he was convicted of stealing uh, book proceeds from Miss Daniels. And the other, oh, that's right, when he tried to extort $25 million from Nike. So he got 14 years on his California case, which was primarily for stealing clients' money. And it means that it is consecutive to his cases in New York, where he received a five-year sentence. So when he is done serving the five-year sentence, then he starts getting credit on the California District Court case where he got the 14 years. Now, remember, he's in the federal system. He's not going home tomorrow like he would be in the state system. In the federal system, you must serve 85% of your sentence until you're able for supervised release, which is the federal term for parole. So, do the math. Mr. Avenatti, assuming he makes it out of there, well, he's he's going to be significantly older. He'll be ready for retirement, that's for sure. Now, the federal prosecutors had asked for a 17-and-a-half-year prison sentence, 
But Mr. Avenatti was trying to make the case uh, that he could, so he could only get six years. He also argued, unsuccessfully, I might add, that his new sentence should run concurrent with the punishment he's already serving in the New York case. The judge said, <laughs> no. They also accused um, the biggest bulk of the theft was Mr. Avenatti bilking clients out of $12 million, one of whom was mentally ill, um, one was paraplegic. Um, and Mr. Avenatti in true form said, hey, it really wasn't 12. It was really only closer to like, you know, 3.8 million. Okay. The one thing that they tell you when you go to um, law school and you're getting ready to take the bar, uh, general rules, don't steal your client's money, don't sleep with your client, and always communicate with your clients. Those are the three general reasons why somebody gets in trouble um, with the bar. Don't communicate, obviously doing something of a sexual nature with your client and stealing clients' money. Um, the bar takes it very, very um, seriously when somebody steals money and because why? That's theft. That's theft. And what Mr. Avenatti did was theft. He stole clients' money. That money, when the settlement came in, he could have kept his portion of what he had earned and the rest had to go to the client immediately. The lawyer saying that he's going to invest it for them and look out for them, that's just not right. Should have been huge red flags. And Mr. Avenatti, never hearing the quote that uh, he who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer, um, not only did he represent himself at the trial, even though he lost his law license and apparently had not done any criminal work, he did so at sentencing and that didn't turn out so well either. And the client and the government said that Mr. Avenatti's actions were not some sort of desperation because, I mean, I get it. We've all been desperate and wanted a, a jet of their own, right? But we didn't steal clients' monies, that's for sure. So this guy had a lot of advantages. He did it basically out of greed. He threw away a top-notch education, a thriving legal career to commit the crime of theft from his clients that he said he was trying to help. Well, hopefully that'll be the last we hear of Mr. Avenatti, but somehow I can imagine he will be being interviewed shortly from a prison cell. And finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Jason Allen Dobbins. He is facing a felony charge for allegedly striking a female Dollar Tree employee who called his wife Karen during a dispute um, last night over, guess this, grocery bags. Police were dispatched around 8.20 p.m. to the discount store in Clearwater, Florida, following the alleged battery of the 20-year-old worker. According to the police, Genesis Sanchez Canales, the Dollar Tree employee, got into an argument with a female customer over grocery bags. The customer eventually began to videotape the victim due to the verbal argument, according to the arrest affidavit. In response to being filmed, Canales called the woman a Karen. At that point, cops alleged the customer's husband, with an open hand, slapped the victim to her left cheek. When officers responded to the store, they arrested Mr. Dobbins. Since Dobbins has a prior battery conviction, he was charged with felony for allegedly striking Miss Canales. And also, apparently after being read his rights, Mr. Dobson reportedly said there was a verbal altercation which occurred over the grocery bags, but that he no longer wished to speak about the 
Karen confrontation. The police also noted that the um, Karen confrontation was observed by an independent witness. Apparently, there was no information put in there exactly what the dispute was over the grocery bags. Was it the price? Was it the quantity? Was it the quality? I mean, these questions must be answered because um, I always want to know what was it truly worth going to jail for? Grocery bags? Are you kidding me? Wow. All right. Well, Mr. Dobbins spent the night in jail before he posted a $2,500 bond. Congratulations, Mr. Dobbins. I guess it is commendable. Chivalry is not dead. You defended your wife's honor. I mean, being called a Karen is a pretty low blow. I get it. But was it really worth going to jail for and facing a felony charge? Mm. Somehow I think no, which is why you are our dumb criminal of the day. All right. Thanks for watching. We hope to see you tonight, 6 p.m. Mountain Time for our live show. We'll see you then. Have a good day.